With that, I do want to invite you to open to Daniel chapter 8 with me. Daniel chapter 8, last two times, Abner uh, covered the first part of the chapter, and he discussed basically God's revelation of how life for Israel will go from bad to worse. He talked about, last Sunday specifically, he talked about the big horn which is Alexander the Great, one of the images of the uh, ultimate Antichrist. And today, we want to look at the little horn in Daniel chapter 8, also in the second part of that chapter. And we'll see how this is another image of the Antichrist, of course, with a little a, and this is Antiochus Epiphanes. And all throughout, as we're looking at these passages, we see how these images of the Antichrist are pointing forward to the ultimate Antichrist in so many different ways. And they show how the ultimate Antichrist will essentially try to wipe out, annihilate the nation of Israel. And as we look at our text today, and as we see how Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Israel and uh, committed various atrocious acts against the nation of Israel, we see that something very similar is happening even today in the Middle East. We're seeing today how... Satan is essentially trying to do what he's been trying to do throughout all of history, to wipe out the nation of Israel. We saw Hamas attack Israel, murder over a thousand people, kidnap men, women, children, behead children. And as a result, when Israel went after Hamas in Gaza, we saw innocent or we see innocent people dying, people who are not terrorists. And this is a tragedy. And even while this is happening, we see all of the world turning against Israel. Marches, protests, explicitly and literally calling out for the complete annihilation of Israel. And I, uh, I'm sure you guys all saw this in the news. It was remarkable to see one of the former Hamas leaders uh, call out to the Muslim world and call them to carry out a jihad against Israel on this past Friday just calling out for them to go against and to, to uh, carry out a day of rage against the nation of Israel. And this completely reminded me of what happened in the book of Esther with Haman, because this is exactly what he did. He called the nation of Persia to commit a day in which they would go against the Jews in that, in that empire, and they would kill the Jews of that empire on the 13th day of Adar. And look at this verse. This is from Esther 3.13. And just be be in awe of how reminiscent it sounds of what happened today. This is, it's describing the plan that Haman had, and this is what it says. Letters were sent by the hand of couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause all the Jews to perish, both young and old, little ones and women, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. I mean, you look at this and you just ask the question, is this not what Hamas did to Israel when they attacked Israel? And is this not what, uh, what Hamas was calling all of the Muslim world to do on this past Friday? And here you can see that it, it was on the 13th day of the month, and I still don't know what to do with this. Maybe Abner can help me, but... This Friday was the 13th day of October. 
Okay, I'm not saying there's anything to it. I'm just making that observation and that's all. But when you look at this, you see that nothing has changed. The plan that Satan was trying to carry out against the people of Israel in ancient history is still, he's still trying to do that right now. And as we look at all this, the question is, how do we respond? As believers, how do we react to all of this? Now, of course, we must pray for peace. And we must pray for the gospel to go out during these times, these dark times. We must pray for the gospel to go out in Israel and also in Gaza. People in Israel and people in Gaza are suffering. Right? And we want the gospel to go out to those people. And as one of the pastors, David Sadoka, was talking to him this week, and he said, look, the most important thing in all of this is for the gospel to shine forth in this dark and this difficult time. And so we must pray for that. And as we look at our passage today, we see that God gave a revelation to Daniel about Satan's attack against the nation of Israel, specifically to answer this question of how do you respond to this if you're a believer in God? And the answer that he gave, the, the message that God gave to Daniel is when all of this is happening, you must have confidence in God. When these tragedies when this terror is happening you must have confidence in God and I said this before but God gave this revelation to Daniel because God wanted Daniel to know that God knows that all of this is happening and God knew that all of this would happen God is omniscient and he wanted Daniel to know this God also wanted Daniel to understand that God is sovereign during all of this situa- these uh, circumstances. God is omnipotent. Even right now in Gaza and in Israel, God is in full control. And God wanted Daniel to know that God will ultimately be victorious. All of God's enemies will be destroyed one day, and Christ will be king. He will be the only king. He will reign in absolute and unbending righteousness from Jerusalem. So God revealed all of this to Daniel in this vision about Antiochus Epiphanes that we're going to look at today. And he revealed this to him, to Daniel, even a few hundred years before Antiochus was even born. God showed that this evil ruler, Antiochus, would try to destroy the people of Israel, but that God would defeat him. And when this came to pass, when this event took place, and when God gave Israel the victory over Antiochus Epiphanes, the people of Israel continued to celebrate this victory in the feast that we call Hanukkah. Okay? Now, we're all familiar with this image. It looks like a menorah. That's not actually a menorah. That's a Hanukkiah. That's what it says right there. A Hanukkiah... Uh, a menorah, I should say, has six candles for uh, the sixth day of the week, for the six days of the week. And this one has eight candles, and each one has an extra candle in the middle to light the other candles. And so technically, yes, you have nine candles here. So that would be the difference. But you have this Hanukkah that represents the festival of Hanukkah. And every year around December, the Jewish world celebrates Hanukkah. They light these candles for eight days. They give gifts to one another. Um, The kids play with a dreidel uh, right there. They spin that top. They play with the dreidel. And on each side of the dreidel, there's a letter that you can see. 
noon, samech, shin, and hey. And each letter represents a word, Nezgadol Hayasham. It says, a great miracle took place there, there in the land of Israel. Or if you're in the land of Israel, it's a great miracle took place here in this land of Israel. And the miracle that this is talking about is the miracle of Hanukkah. The miracle of Hanukkah. The miracle when Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy the nation of Israel, but God defeated him and God demonstrated his power over him. And this attempt by Antiochus to kill all of the Jewish people, to execute them, is exactly what Daniel prophesies in our passage today, in Daniel chapter 8. In our portion, Daniel 8, 9 through 14, Daniel describes Antiochus' life. He describes this little horn, as he calls him, and he gives us four characteristics about this little horn. Four characteristics about how he will reign with terror over the people of Israel. He describes his political power. He describes his religious arrogance. He describes his successful cruelty and then his ultimate fall. And God reveals these features to show that even though Antiochus was ruthless, even though he reigned with terror, God was more powerful than him. God is more powerful than him. And so God, through this revelation, is calling Daniel and all of God's people to have confidence in God. And what should encourage us even more is that this this revelation about Antiochus points to the ultimate Antichrist and shows us that just how God conquered Antiochus, who is Antichrist with a small a, God will also defeat the ultimate Antichrist, who is Antichrist with the capital A. And then Christ will be king, and he will reign over the entire world. And so as God begins to reveal Antiochus' reign of terror, God shows that Antiochus will rise. He will obtain great political power. He will terrorize the nation of Israel, and he will be vicious. He will carry out various atrocities against this nation. And as God leads up to this rise of Antiochus, he first gives Daniel a sweep of history to show him how all of this is going to play out. He shows him that there will be four great empires. There's going to be the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and then the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is the one that's going to be revived in the end, from which the ultimate Antichrist will come. And this revelation to Daniel shows that things will go from horrible to even worse. The Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem was horrendous. And remember that Daniel is, at this time, in Babylon as a result of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. He's a slave in Babylon. It was horrendous. Antiochus comes, and he's vicious. He's trying to destroy the people of Israel. But then when the ultimate Antichrist comes, he's going to do things that we can't even imagine, things that we've never seen before. And as Daniel is in Babylon at this time as a slave, God reveals this sweep of history to him, and God shows him that for, you know, first Babylon will be conquered by Medo-Persia, then Medo-Persia will be conquered by Greece, and then Greece will be conquered by the Roman Empire. But before Greece is conquered, 
God shows that Greece will be split up into four kingdoms. And out of one of these four kingdoms will rise up one whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes, a little horn who will be an antichrist with the little a. And this is where the revelation about Antiochus picks up with these four kingdoms, and it shows us how Antiochus comes up out of one of these four kingdoms. So I invite you to look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, and this is where we begin. And it says, out of one of them, out of one of these four horns, of, or these four kingdoms, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, and it grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And the beautiful land is the nation of Israel. So what we have here is we have the four kingdoms um, re- led by the four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. These are the generals who succeeded Alexander the Great. They fought over the empire that he created, and then they split it into four kingdoms, and they began to rule over it. And it says here that this little horn, Antiochus, will rise up out of one of these kingdoms, and it'll be specifically the kingdom of Seleucus. He comes up, and he gains power, and he reigns from this kingdom. Now, He's called here, Antiochus is called here, a little horn. But as Abner pointed out last time, we've already heard of a small horn or a little horn before, right? In Daniel chapter 7. And I immediately want to say that this is a different little horn. In Daniel 7, the horn that we saw is the ultimate antichrist. He is the horn that comes out of the Roman kingdom. Well, in this chapter, in Daniel chapter 8, this little horn is also Antichrist, but he comes out of a Greek kingdom. So it's a different Antichrist. And that's why we say that, okay, this one is an image of the Antichrist in Daniel 8, but in Daniel 7, it's the ultimate Antichrist who comes from the Roman kingdom. And the question is, well, if they're two different people, then why are they using the same language? And that's deliberate. Because God wanted us to make an association between these two. God wanted us to see that uh, Antiochus is an image of the ultimate Antichrist. He wanted us to see, God wanted us to see that just as Antiochus rose up from being a small horn and then grew great and became big, so the ultimate Antichrist will rise up being small initially, but then becoming great in his power. And God also wanted us to see that just like God conquered the first Antichrist, the little Antichrist, so will God conquer and defeat the ultimate Antichrist as well. Now, as we look at this, even though we see that even though Antiochus started off small, he became exceedingly great. And being power-hungry, he tried to conquer every land that was around him. He conquered Egypt to the south. He conquered Persia and Armenia to the east. He even conquered the the, uh, land of Israel to the west. And here you can see on the map, the yellow represents the land that he was ruling. This is after Alexander the Great. Uh, The kingdoms were split, and he gained tons of land because of his uh, power-hungry ambitions to, uh, to rule all that land. 
Now, Israel is called the beautiful land here. And it's interesting. It's called the beautiful land because it's the prize. It's the royal jewel. Since Israel is the center of God's plan for world history, it attracts the forces of Satan to attack and to capture that land. And we see this with the Antichrist Antiochus. We see this today. And we're going to see this also with the ultimate Antichrist. So Antiochus conquered all of this land and he reigned, he ruled over this land for about 10 years or so from 175 BC to 164 BC. Now here's the interesting thing. Just as Antiochus prefigured the Antichrist in his bloodthirsty craving for power, he also prefigured the Antichrist in that he was an imposter. He was an illegitimate king. Antiochus wasn't the rightful heir to the throne. The rightful heir to the throne was Demetrius I, who was probably Antiochus's nephew or something like that. But Antiochus claimed the throne for himself, and he became the ruler. And just like the ultimate Antichrist is going to be an imposter who will try to take the throne of Christ, this Antiochus, this little a Antichrist, is also an imposter. And so then we can ask the question, how could someone so small at the outset, how can somebody who is an illegitimate king, how can they become so powerful and so wicked? Well, as someone who prefigured the Antichrist, the only possible answer to this is that he was empowered by Satan himself. Daniel 8.24, later on in the chapter, continues to speak about the Antichrist. And there it's talking about the final Antichrist. And it says that the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, will be mighty. And then it says, but not by his own power. And then Revelation 13.3 explicitly says that Satan will empower the Antichrist and he will rule through him. And in the same way, the only way that Antiochus's rise to power, his immense wickedness, the only way that this can be explained is that Satan was working through him. And so Antiochus became great. Now, even though Antiochus gained great political power on this earth, that was not enough for him. He wanted more. And this takes us to the second characteristic about Antiochus, his religious arrogance. God revealed that Antiochus wasn't happy with just political dominance. He wanted to take the place of God. He wanted to take the place of God who rules heaven and earth. So look at verse 10 with me. Then this little horn, or Antiochus, grew up to the host of heaven and he caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down, or Antiochus trampled them down. Antiochus wasn't satisfied with just political power that he had gained on this earth. He began to challenge heaven itself. He attacked the host of heaven and the stars of heaven. But who is the host of heaven? Who are the stars of heaven? Well, the Bible frequently compares Israel to the host of heaven or to the stars of heaven. Remember when Abraham made a covenant 
Well, when God made a covenant with Abraham, God said that I will make you as great as the stars of the heavens. When Joseph had a dream in Genesis 37, he dreamt about the, the sun, the moon, and then 11 stars. And the 11 stars are the sons of Jacob. They represent the tribes of Israel. And then if you go to Revelation 12, it depicts Israel as 12 stars, referring to the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what we have here as well. The host of heaven and the stars of heaven are the nation of Israel. And so Antiochus began a very specific and a very coordinated attack against the nation of Israel. But remember that whenever you attack Israel, you attack God. Zechariah 2.8 says that he who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of God's eye. If you attack Israel, you attack God. God chose Israel to be his people. But Antiochus attacked God's people in order to destroy them. It says he caused them to fall to the earth and he trampled them down. Antiochus doesn't want me to carry on talking about him. <laughs> uh, no, I can... I can uh, one, one second, one pause. Um, tell you a story. Um, no, no, actually, do you want me to speak into this mic? No. Okay, what's that? Oh, the whole thing. That's okay, then I'll just talk. Can you guys hear me? Yes. See, it's a good thing my voice recovered. After today, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to lose my voice again, so next Sunday you're not going to see me. <laughs> no, I, no, my voice feels great. There we go. We're back. All right. It's working. Great. Thank you, guys. I got to say that our media team is just awesome. When we were singing the songs, you saw that the PowerPoint went out, right? Well, you know, I wasn't going to say this, but I was the one who made it go out. Uh, I stepped on the wire and then disconnected it from the thing. And, I mean, it was incredible. Within a split, I mean, it was less than a second. Jason is already up connecting all of the wires. I'm like, okay, I'm going to step back. I'm going to disconnect something right now again. (laughs) So I I really am thankful for our media team. They do a tremendous job with this. So back to Antiochus. Um, Antiochus attacked the people of Israel. God chose the people of Israel to be his people, a people through whom he would send his Messiah to be his precious uh, treasure. But Antiochus attacked the people and he trampled them down to the ground. So Antiochus went directly against God, directly against the will of God. And uh, when he attacked the host of heaven, the stars of heaven, he showed his arrogance by going against a nation that God had specifically chosen. And so how did Antiochus do this? What was the practical uh, out? Uh, outworking of his attack on Israel. Well, Antiochus was a Greek polytheist. And so he tried to force the entire nation of Israel to abandon their practices, to abandon their religion, and to accept and to start practicing Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek traditions, everything related to Greece. And whoever didn't do this, he would kill them. And where do you think he started 
implementing this. He started at the very top. He went to the temple. And of course, the temple is the center of Jewish life. It's the center of religion for Israel that God uh, had instituted. And what Antiochus did was he removed the high priest who was set there, and he installed his own high priest named Jason. Now, it's not clear if Jason, if Jason was Greek or if he was Jewish, but one thing is clear. Jason was committed to the vision and to the plans of Antiochus. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, removing the high priest, installing his own priest, if this wasn't bad enough, what Jason, the new high priest, did was he built a gymnasium near, not far away from the temple, and in total view of the temple. Now, you might say, I go to the gym. What's wrong with having a gym, right? And if you go to the gym, I want to say keep going to the gym, okay? <laughs> I need to go to the gym, but I don't think it's happening anytime soon. But he, the problem with this Greek gymnasium was that the people exercised in this gym. They carried out their sports and events completely naked. In fact, the, world, the word gymnasium itself means to be naked. And to have a place like this next to the temple was a, a direct offense to God, direct offense to the religion of Israel, and direct offense to the temple itself. And besides this element, the gymnasium was a place where you would go and you would show off your powerful body to the gods, to Zeus and to other Greek gods. So Jason built a structure devoted to idolatry right next to the temple, standing as a direct competition to the temple of God. Now, to add to this, Antiochus also prohibited Jews from practicing their religion. He pro prohibited them from keeping Sabbath, from celebrating the Jewish festivals, from circumcising their boys, and from even studying the Torah. And if anyone disobeyed his orders, he would find them and he would kill them. Josephus, a Jewish historian, describes that if any of the mothers circumcised their boys, the mothers would be strangled or they would be crucified and then that baby would be hung around their necks as the mother is being killed. Antiochus had absolutely no tolerance for disobedience, for disregard to his orders. At one point, uh, when Antiochus thought that there was rebellion happening in Jerusalem by the Jewish people, he came into Jerusalem and he slaughtered massive numbers of Jewish people. He killed 80,000 Jews and he sold 40,000 into slavery. I mean, it was horrific, the things that he was doing. So when God reveals in this revelation to Daniel that the little horn trampled the stars and trampled the hosts of heaven, this is the kind of barbarity that it's talking about. And this arrogant and this vicious attack on Israel was only a preview of what the ultimate Antichrist will do to Israel in the future. Zechariah says that when the Antichrist comes, two-thirds of the people in Israel will be killed. That is the kind of attack that the ultimate Antichrist will carry out against the nation of Israel. And that's what Antiochus was doing as an image of the Antichrist. So Antiochus shows his arrogance here by attacking God's people. But that wasn't enough for him. 
Daniel says that Antiochus challenged not only Israel, but also that he challenged God himself. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, And the horn, or Antiochus, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Now, if the host of heaven is Israel, then who is the commander of the host? It's God, right? It's God himself. So Daniel says here that Antiochus magnified himself to be equal with God. Now, I've referred to Antiochus as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, right? But do you know what Antiochus Epiphanes means? God manifest. I've heard, I heard some people say that. God manifest or manifest as God. Antiochus Epiphanes gave himself the title God manifest. Now, because he was so vicious and because he was so mad, people didn't call him Antiochus Epiphanes. People began to call him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman, because he was so atrocious and so vicious in the things that he did. But he viewed himself as God, and he tried to take the place of God. He even began to produce coins, money, with his image on these coins, and then words on these coins, theos epiphanes, God manifest. And right there, you can see a couple of coins right there. An image of himself with the words God manifest in reference to himself and Theos is the word that we know for theist or in the word theology. Well, Antiochus took that and he applied that to himself because he wanted to be God. He wanted to take the place of God. Now, it's interesting here that Daniel said Antiochus made himself equal specifically with the commander of the host. And this word commander is the exact same word for prince, like the word prince of peace. Right? And so who is the Prince of Peace? That's Jesus, right? That's, that's Christ, the Messiah. And so when we say that Antiochus, when this the revelation says that Antiochus uh, wanted to be equal to the commander, he wanted to be equal to God, specifically to the second person of the Godhead, to Christ himself. And because of this, he is called the Antichrist because he's trying to replace Christ. And as he tried to make himself equal to God by literally calling himself God, he also tried to remove worship from the temple, worship that was supposed to uh, praise God, sacrifices that were supposed to praise God. Daniel says that Antiochus removed the regular sacrifice from him, from God, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And in, this happened in December 167 when Antiochus went into the temple and he offered a pig on the altar there in the temple. And you know that according to Levitical law, the pig is a uh, filthy, it's an unclean animal. It's not kosher. Israelites weren't supposed to eat it, let alone sacrifice it to God. Well, in order to defy God... He defiled the temple of God by offering this sacrifice, this sacrifice of the pig. So Antiochus defied God, he defiled the temple, and he deified himself, presenting himself 
as God. That's how remarkable the arrogance of Antiochus was. And this is exactly, even to a greater degree, what the ultimate Antichrist will do. In 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul says that the ultimate Antichrist will take his seat in the sanctuary of God, in the temple, and he will exhibit himself as God. The arrogance and the cruelty that we see in Antiochus will also be evident, but to a much greater extent, in the ultimate Antichrist. So as God reveals this character, uh, Antiochus, God shows his power, uh, Antiochus's power. God shows his arrogance. And that God also shows that he will be successful in what he does. He will be successful in his cruelty against Israel. Look at verse 12. God shows here that Antiochus will be successful in his cruelty against Israel. Verse 12 says, And on account of transgression, the host, or the people of Israel, will be given over to the horn, Antiochus, along with the regular sacrifice. And the horn, or Antiochus, will throw down uh, the truth to the ground and do its will and succeed. So for a time being, Antiochus will succeed in the vicious acts that he will carry out against Israel. But we can ask, why did God allow these horrors to take place? Why did God allow such uh, atrocious acts to take place against his own people? Well, Daniel says here that it's because of transgression, on account of transgression. Some say that uh, this may refer to the transgression or to the acts of Antiochus, uh, but because this, this uh, explanation appears in the part of the verse that describes Israel, it's best to take this as the transgression of Israel. And as you think back to it, you remember that after Israel returned from exile, some of the people were committed to God. At the same time, some people committed various sins, like marrying foreign women. And in the time of Antiochus, some Jewish people were committed to God, but others accepted the Greek and the pagan religion, and they went against God. The book of the Maccabees says that some of the Jews participated in that gymnasium that Jason had built, and they abandoned their covenant to God. This is what the uh, section in the Maccabees says. It says that they joined with the Gentiles, and they sold themselves to do evil. And so because of these transgressions, God allowed Antiochus to persecute the people of Israel with a certain level of success. And so Antiochus terrorized the nation by torturing and by killing many of them. Now, in addition to killing the people, he also tried to stomp out the, the truth of God. He tried to stomp out the scriptures. Daniel says that he will throw truth down to the ground. The truth is the word of God. It's the Torah. And the book of the Maccabees says that Antiochus searched, went throughout the land. He searched for the Torahs. And whatever scrolls of the Torah they found, they tore them up and they burned them. Antiochus tried to exterminate any trace of God from Israel. That was his intent. That was his goal. But he's not the first person to do this. And he's not the last person to do this. I've already shared this story with you all, um, how our house was searched in the former Soviet Union by the KGB where they tried to find 
uh, Christian literature in order to destroy it. And the biggest search that we had experienced in our house was when I was just two or so months old. Now, I'm proud to say that even though I was only two months old, I played a pretty significant role in that search, okay? (laughs) Uh, Now, what happened was our house was used as a place where we would store and where we would hide Christian literature, books, Bibles, uh, children's books, all kinds of material for believers. And somehow the KGB found this out. And so one early morning, the KGB came, and they knocked on our door. 17 KGB officers came early in the morning. And my mom uh, came, uh, when she heard the knock, she came out to the door. She immediately understood what was going on. And guess what she did? She didn't open the door. Instead, there was an extra latch on our door that was unlocked, and she locked it. (laughs) And as she locked it, she went back and she began to hide Christian literature. There were some papers that we had lying out uh, which uh, had confidential information that would have compromised believers uh, if the KGB had gotten it. And so uh, we had a fireplace going at this time. It was March, so it was still cold and snowing. And so she took those papers and just had to throw them into the fire. Uh, she, uh, my mom took a briefcase with some literature in it, and she gave it to my sister Elizabeth. And she said to her, hold on to this. Don't let go of it. Carry it around with you wherever you go. Uh, I was two months old. I was in a stroller, and my mom began to take Bibles and various books, and she began to stuff them under me, hoping, <laughs> hoping that I would sleep like a baby. <laughs> and that was my role. I did. Okay. <laughs> And so this was just a few minutes, right? This happened within a few minutes. The, the KGB kept on banging on the door, and so my mom came, and she opened the door, and they just stormed into the house, and they began searching everything room by room. And this search lasted for about 10 hours. Well, in the middle of the day, uh, a Christian brother drives up with a car, bringing a car full of additional literature <laughs> to store in our house because that's where you would hide it. Well, he drives up, and he walks up to the door, opens the door, about to walk in. At that moment, my mom is standing there. She sees him, and she literally just goes like this. He closes the door, and he leaves. He doesn't know what's going on. Later on, we find out. He has no idea what's going on, and so he's just thinking, what just happened? Right? And there was another Christian man working down the street. He was, a constr- he was in construction. He was a welder. And so he drives over to him and he says, look, something is happening at that home and we need to find out what it is because it doesn't look good. And so the the construction man, the welder, he had an idea. He said uh, he took a bucket, an empty bucket. He was wearing his construction outfit, had some, you know, welding instruments on him, walks over to our house, knocks on the door. The KGB opens the door. And he says, I'm sorry for disturbing you. We're working just down the street over there on construction. uh, And we needed to get some water. So I was wondering if I can get some water from your house. And the KGB nicely said, absolutely, I come on in, get some water. So he walks in with his bucket, walks down to the restroom, just down the hall. He looks around. He sees that our house is filled with KGB people. He gets the water. He goes back, uh, leaves. He goes back to the other man. And he says, yeah, they're being searched by, by the KGB right now. And so they spread the word to the rest of the believers, saying to them, we need to pray for them right now because what's happening there is an outright uh, search for Christian literature. So they did this search for 10 hours. At the end of the 10 hours, they collected six large bags of Christian literature. Um, And then 
basically towards the end of this search, uh, they saw me sleeping in the stroller. And one of the KGB uh, officers came up and he said to my mom, take the baby out. So they took, my mom took me out and they went through the stroller and they took out all of the literature. The only thing that was preserved was my sister's uh, briefcase that she was carrying around with this. And then Mark was also, he was, I think he was like two and a half at that time. What he would do is, what he would typically do is just move stuff around, right? He's, that's his character. He's always reorganizing stuff, moves stuff around. So what he would do is he would go to a room that wasn't searched. He would take a book or take a Bible and he would carry it to a room that was searched and then he would leave it there. So... Even a two-and-a-half-year-old tricked the KGB, so there you go. <laughs> um, but this, the intent of the KGB was to collect all of the Christian literature, the scripture, and to destroy it. That was their intent, and that was the intent of Antiochus Epiphanes, to stomp out the truth and to stomp out the word of God as much as they could. And Daniel says that even though these actions were blasphemous. Even though these actions were horrendous, and even though the actions against the Jewish people were brutal, Antiochus would succeed. He would succeed in killing the Jewish men, women, and children. He would succeed in stumping out the Torah to a certain extent. He would succeed in desecrating the temple. How could this happen? How could a wicked man succeed in doing such vicious acts against Almighty God? And Daniel answers this question. Daniel says that it was because God gave him that power. Because God gave Israel over to persecution to Antiochus. It says here explicitly, the host, or Israel, will be given over to the horn. Now, it's important to realize that Antiochus succeeded not because he was clever or because he was powerful or because he was a political leader. That's not why he succeeded. He succeeded because God, in his sovereignty, gave the nation of Israel over to Antiochus for persecution. And that persecution lasted only as long as God allowed it to last. But Antiochus was able to do this only because God, the God who raises up kings and the God who takes kings down, only because God Almighty allowed Antiochus to do this. And in fact, in God's sovereign plan, God raised up Antiochus so that he would bring him down and so that God would be glorified. Just as God raised up Pharaoh in order to bring him down and to bring glory to God, he did the same with Antiochus. And we can see this about Pharaoh when God says, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And that's exactly what God did with Antiochus. God raised him up and then God demonstrated his power over Antiochus by destroying him. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later, celebrating the power of God over Antiochus. That's exactly what God intended by raising up Antiochus for this purpose, to bring glory to God. Now, in addition to this, God also used Antiochus to be an image or to, be, to prefigure 
the ultimate Antichrist so that God would show how God will defeat the ultimate Christ, Antichrist as well. And this is our final characteristic about Antiochus, the ultimate end of Antiochus. Look at uh, verses 13 and 14 with me. It says here, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes desolation so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be made righteous. Even though Antiochus was terrible, the emphasis here in Daniel's vision is that God is in full control. And we see this in a conversation that we get to overhear between angels. The holy ones speaking here are angels. When Nebuchadnezzar had a, dream, uh, had a vision in Daniel ch- chapter 4, it says that a holy one descended from heaven and gave him the revelation, an angel. Right, and here we have holy ones speaking, and they are angels speaking just like in Daniel 4. And the angel asks, how long will this persecution last? And notice that the angel doesn't ask whether God will do something or whether God is able to do something. He asks when God will bring all of this persecution to an end. The angel was confident that God was in full control. And this should give us confidence that God is in full control. Even when life and circumstances seem to be completely chaotic, God is in full control of them. And the answer that the angel gives shows that God has a very specific plan for what was happening in Israel during the time of Antiochus. How long will this last for? The angel angel says in verse 14, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's six years and one-third. God was in control over this persecution to the very last minute. And God wanted Daniel to know and to be encouraged that this plan was so specific. I mean, think about it. Why did God reveal the number of days to Daniel? God could have easily said to him, the secret things belong to the Lord. This is not something that you should know. He could have easily said to him, I will bring this to an end. Trust me. And that would have been sufficient. But God gives him a specific number. Why does he do that? Because God wanted to encourage Daniel. He wanted Daniel to know that the days of Antiochus are numbered. The very day that God says persecution will start, that's when it's going to start. The very day that God says that persecution will end, that's when it's going to end. It's not going to end one minute sooner. It's not going to end one minute later. When God says it, that's when it'll happen. And God wanted Daniel to know that he knows every single detail that is happening and that he is in in control of every single detail that is happening. And this applies to the future from our perspective as well. The day of the Lord that is coming is not some ambiguous time in the future. It will come on a precise day in a precise minute. And it will last exactly as long as God says that it will last. We don't know when it will happen, but God knows when it will happen. And the history is moving in that direction. We have calendars, right, on which it says December 31st. And we know that that's 
the end of the year, and then January 1st is the beginning of the year. Well, there is a divine calendar, figuratively speaking, on which it says, Day of the Lord. And when that day comes, then the end of the world will come. For Antiochus, this period was 2,300 days. And on day 2,300, it ended. Now, it's hard to be categorical about exactly when the persecution started or maybe even the exact day when it ended. But it's likely that it started when Antiochus planned and then carried out his assassination or his execution of the high priest Onias III in September of 171 BC. And then after this, Antiochus launched a massive persecution of Israel, which lasted for 2,300 days. Roughly in the middle of this persecution, he went into the temple, Antiochus went into the temple, and he offered the sacrifice of the pig, and he desecrated the temple, and he demanded that everybody worship Zeus. And when he did this, this provoked a revolt amongst the Jewish people in the Jewish community. And so in 167 BC, when this was happening, the Maccabees, the Maccabean family started the revolt and they carried out a full-blown guerrilla warfare warfare against Antiochus. And about two years later, after the revolt started, they defeated Antiochus and they cleansed the temple. So Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled exactly as God had revealed it to him. And why did that happen? Because God is in control. And even though this revelation describes a horrific time, God wanted Daniel to be encouraged because God wanted Daniel to know that God will ultimately be victorious. Now, because Antiochus prefigures the Antichrist, God's control over Antiochus is guarantee that God will have sovereign control over the Antichrist as well. The Antichrist will be far worse. He will be far more defiant, violent, aggressive against Israel, and aggressive against God as well. But he will be defeated by God. Because the Antichrist will be so vicious, God will restrict his time and his reign even more than he restricted Antiochus' time. Antiochus persecuted Israel for 2,300 days. Scripture shows that the Antichrist will persecute Israel for 1,260 days in the second part of the tribulation. That's about half of Antiochus' time. Christ said that God limited the Antichrist's time, the Antichrist's reign, for the sake of his elect. And what this means is that even though antichrists will come, even though antichrists will persecute Israel or the believers, God is still in absolute control over every single event, and God will not allow even a single one of his sheep to perish in the attacks of the antichrist, to to succumb to the attacks of the antichrist. Well, after revealing Antiochus' demise here after the 2,300 days, the angel then encouraged Daniel by giving him an even greater uh, victory announcement. And that is the fact that Israel will cleanse the temple. The angel declared here that the holy place will be made righteous. And that's exactly what happened. 
in December of 164 BC, the entire temple was cleansed. Antiochus' desecration, all of the sacrifices that he did, the pagan elements that he brought into the temple, all of them were removed. And the temple was rededicated to God. And here is the thing. I use the word rededicated, and I know, you may not know this, maybe you do, but I know that you know the word rededicate in Hebrew. It's the word Hanukkah, rededication of the temple. That's why they call the festival or the feast Hanukkah. And every single year, Hanukkah is celebrated throughout the Jewish world, remembering God's victory over Antiochus and remembering the cleansing of the temple in order to worship God. In John 20, 10, uh, verse 22, we read of an episode when Jesus went into the temple and he began to preach. And John says that there was a specific, it was a specific feast when Jesus went into the temple. And this feast was the feast of Hanukkah. It was the feast of dedication. And the message that Jesus preached was the most appropriate message for the feast of Hanukkah. His message was, I and the Father are one. Jesus preached that he is God. And this is so significant because in the temple, you're supposed to worship God. And Jesus comes into the temple on Hanukkah, the day when they cleansed the temple in order to worship God. And he says to them, I am God. I am the one that you're supposed to worship. Here I am standing before you in the temple, and I am the one you are supposed to give worship to. And when he said that, the response of the people was tragic, to say the least. They responded by picking up stones and trying to kill him. Now, even though this was the response of the people when Jesus came into the temple the first time, the response to Jesus when he comes the second time will be completely opposite. When Christ returns, he will be worshipped by the entire world. And Daniel's prophecy looked forward to this. When Daniel described the cleansing of the temple, he used language that was very specific. He said that the temple will be made righteous. Well, this language of righteousness is the language that is used to describe God making sinners righteous in God's sight. In Isaiah 53, 11, that's the prophecy of the suffering Messiah, the Messiah is called the righteous one. And it says that he will make many sinners righteous. This language of righteousness in Daniel shows that Daniel looked forward to the time when the temple will be perfectly cleansed and when, when ultimate righteousness will be in the temple. And that will take place only when the Messiah returns and when the temple will be filled with the righteous glory of God. Then the temple will truly be dedicated to God and then God and the Messiah Jesus will be worshipped by the entire world when Christ returns. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for the revelation that you have given to Daniel, that we can look to it and that we can have confidence 
that you are in full control. When things seem to be falling apart, when there seems to be so much chaos and so much unknown, Lord, when we look to Israel right now and we see that there's warfare, Lord, we find so much comfort in the truth, in the reality that you are in absolute and unwavering, unbending control of every single event that happens. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that that is reality, and we thank you that you revealed that reality to us so that we can turn to you and we can find comfort in you. Lord, I pray that we would depend on your word, that we would depend on you, and that our response to you would be to worship you. Our response to your word would be to worship you. Lord, I pray that this would stay in our hearts and that it would transform our lives and that it would cause us to look forward to that day when Christ returns and when he reigns in absolute righteousness over this world. Lord, I pray this and I praise your name in the name of Jesus. Amen.